There we go. We're in First Timothy and at the very end of the book, and I promise we'll finish tonight. We're in verse uh, chapter six, and we're right around verse 14 is where we left off. Uh, here's the backstory of, in, in short, First Timothy is a book written by the Apostle Paul to his protege. He's been mentoring Timothy since he met him. And Timothy, he left in Ephesus to pastor a really difficult church with all kinds of problems. False teachers have crept in and they're pulling disciples away from Timothy and his true teaching of the word. Timothy's a young man. More than 22 times in the two books written to Timothy, he's exhorted to be strong, to not be afraid, to not be timid. From that, we gather that he's very afraid and very young and scared of what's going on. He really wants to leave that church and go be with Paul, um, and he can't. And Paul is basically writing this letter to say, stay the course, even though you're, you feel like you're outnumbered and you're teaching true doctrine and there's a lot of opposition, stay the course and don't let them major in the minors. He teaches Timothy in these two books how a church should be run, how to pick leaders, elders, pastors, whatever. They're, all the words are sort of interchangeable. Um, so we're going to see tonight the greatness of God. We're going to have a talk about wealth and riches um, and then guarding what's really valuable. And then we'll move into 2 Timothy. So let's go back to 1 Timothy, um, and we're going to pick it up right at verse, uh, I'll, I'll pick it up at verse 13. So I know that you people are awake. Those of you that are here, say amen. amen. Oh, that was a good one. Those of you on Zoom, wave or say amen. I can't see most of you, but I see about 10 of you. And I see you waving, Chris. Thank you. You get an A for the day. Um, so this is the final chapter for Paul. Verse 13, in, in the sight of God, he's really almost putting him under oath, imploring him in the sight of God who gives life to everything and of Jesus Christ, who, while testifying before Pontius Pilate, made the good confession, I charge you to do something. That's in verse 14. So just by way of review, verse 13, he's saying, I'm charging you in the sight of God. He's trying to remind Timothy, don't forget who you work for. It's not for me. It's not for the people in that church. You're working for the God of the universe who gives life to everything, every living thing, not just people, um, animals, plants, everything that has life has God's DNA, if you will, uh, on it. It's a beautiful verse. And then of Jesus Christ. And then he mentions that he testified before Pontius Pilate and he made the good confession. Why is that in there? Because Timothy is tempted to wimp out, quiet down, and kind of take a back seat at this church where he's afraid of what will happen if he tells the truth. Well, Jesus was not afraid of what would happen. He told Pontius Pilate the truth. Who He eventually asks him, are you the king of the Jews? Are you a king in uh, the gospel of John? And Jesus says that he is, right? And he even tells Pontius Pilate, the most powerful man in that area, Pontius Pilate says to him, don't you know that I have the power to release you or the, or the power to convict you? And Jesus has the guts to say to Pontius Pilate, dude, well, that's not in there, but you know what I mean? You would have no power over me unless it was given to you from God pretty amazing. Um, so he's saying, be like your master, like Jesus Christ. Don't wimp out. Don't be afraid. 
tell the truth, speak with boldness. That's what he's saying in uh, 13. Um, so um, let's see, I charge you, and here comes the charge, verse 14, to keep this command without spot or blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. What command? The command to fight the good fight, to keep on keeping on, to preach the gospel without apology. Don't be ashamed of it. Don't water it down. Tell the truth. Correct the error. You know, be brave. Do it. Um, keep it, but keep it. Keep the command to do that, but without spot or blemish or spot or blame, NIV has. In other words, but examine your own life to make sure that you are living a pure life and are not sinning to give your accusers or the op op opponents a reason to, you know, impugn the gospel. And how long should Timothy do this? A lot of the scholars that wrote on this verse thought that Timothy had asked Paul in a letter, how long do I have to keep doing this job? And Paul answers Timothy with this amazing verse that says, until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which means to the end, right? Remember that there are two ends. Everybody has one of these. And number one is our own death, right? Our own time when God calls us home. Keep fighting the good fight all the way. By the way, parenthetically for this whole book, the danger in listening to me teach this book is that you all and I, you all is plural for you, those of you from not from the South, that you all will hear me teach this and think, yeah, this is just somebody's mail. This is this guy, Timothy. I'm not a pastor. I'm not young. I'm not timid. I don't care what people think. Listen, we may be living in a time when all of a sudden, and it's happening to some extent, the gospel has become like a four-letter word. You can't say it in school. You can't preach it. It's considered hate speech because Christians talk about genders like male and female. And besides male and female, that's it, right? Oh, that's hate speech. That Believe me, the pressure is on in our society to shut you and I up. Teachers, pastors, but even individual Christians. On social media, you can get banned for saying things that are absolutely true. So this is for us as well as everybody else. Keep this command until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. So that can mean our end when Paul is going to die. He dies about five years after he writes this book. Um, he dies really a short period of time after 2 Timothy. We'll tell you about that in a little while. Um, or the coming of the Lord physically to the earth. It's one of the essentials of the historic Christian faith. If you look at the creeds, he will come again to judge the living and the dead. He will come again to rule on this planet. He has to rule on the throne of his father, King David. His uh, he's a dis descendant of King David. He has never done that. He rules in heaven. That's true. He's going to rule on the earth. Talk about a good government. Amen. So until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, I can't resist throwing in Second Thessalonians. So from Second Timothy, go from First Timothy, take a left one book and go to 2 Thessalonians. I always give directions as to where books are, because when the first Bible study I went to, I had no idea where Ephesians was. I thought that was in a book of illusions. You know, I was that illiterate. So 
Um, and everybody was flipping pages and I had no idea where anything was. Second Thessalonians, look at chapter two, verses seven and eight. He's talking about the, uh, the Antichrist um, in, the, in the verses that precede that. Coming, verse one says concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him. Don't be unsettled or alarmed by some prophecies that there's a letter from us that the day of the Lord's already come. He's saying it hasn't come. Verse three, won't happen until the rebellion occurs. And the man of lawlessness, verse three, is revealed. That's the Antichrist. He'll oppose and exalt himself over everything that's called God or his worship. He sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. A man is going to rule the whole world. It's never happened. And he's going to demand worship eventually. Verse uh, 7, for the secret power of lawlessness is already at work, but the one who now holds it back will continue to do so till he's taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed. That's the Antichrist. Listen to this. Whom, the Antichrist, the Lord Jesus Christ will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming when he shows up. Jesus Christ will defeat the Antichrist. There will not be a huge battle. Christ is way more powerful. There's no comparison. But I wanted to mention that. Um, yeah. All right. We'll leave that alone. I was going to go into the whole post-tribulation, pre-tribulation rapture, and I'm going to resist that temptation and go back to first Timothy. Are you still awake? Say amen. amen. Beautiful. Yes. Yes. Ten thirty, yes. There's a, a, yeah. There's a debate there Saturday. I'm going to go because I know both guys. I know Steve Gregg from Santa Cruz years ago, and I know uh, Dennis as well. Yeah, a debate on Amil versus uh, historic premillennialism. Yeah, and Dennis in that debate, she's talking about uh, a, a local church here, CR Pines, this Saturday. Uh, Friday night and also this Saturday morning. Yeah, I believe it's 1030. It'll be on their website. Um, good one. Yeah. Um, okay. Keep this command until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because we don't know when that is, you know what those orders mean? Keep on keeping on. That's for each of us. That's for Timothy. So the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this is all one long sentence. Verse 15. What about the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ? Paul, which God will bring about in his own time. God, the blessed, the only ruler, the king of kings and lord of lords. And the sentence goes on, but let's just take that, that bite of the sandwich for now. So he's saying that the appearing of, of the Lord Jesus Christ, the second coming, God the Father has set the day. Don't forget, because there's always people that are predicting which day. And I can tell you categorically, they're all wrong. Because Jesus says in Matthew 24, of that day, no man knows the day or the hour. Therefore, if a man, human being, woman or man, predicts the day, they're wrong. If you've heard of Harold Camping, he predicted 1994, May 21st, 
eh, wrong. Then he was set on cam a year off or something. And he picked another date a year later. Wrong again. There was a book in the 1980s called 88 Reasons Why Jesus Will Return in 1988. I bet you can buy that book for about five cents now, right? Wrong, wrong, wrong. We don't know the day or the hour. We certainly can look at the signs of the times and say, boy, it sure sounds like things are coming together. Um, so when people ask me, when do you think the Lord's coming back? I always say, it's never been as close as it is right now. Talk about a politician answer, right? <laughs> Paul wants Timothy to remember who your boss is, Tim. The coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, God's going to bring that about in his own time. And then he can't resist God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Now here he's speaking of God, the father who will bring about the coming of the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at the titles here. Don't forget what we talked about in the introduction to this book. Ephesus was a headquarters for the worship of um, idols, especially Artemis or Diana, which was their goddess, if you will. It was also a headquarters for the worship of Caesar, where you would burn a pinch of, of incense and say, Caesar is Lord. Christians were bucking the trend of their society when they say, Jesus is Lord. So Paul can't resist taking a parting shot at all this um, idolatry by mentioning that God will bring about the second coming of Jesus. God is the blessed or the blessed. That word literally means happy, that you are happy because you know the Lord, but he is the ultimate blessed one, the blessed and only ruler, the king of kings and lord of lords the king over all other kings, the Lord over all other lords. Now, twice in the book of Revelation, chapter 17, verse 14, and 19, 16, guess who's called the king of kings and lord of lords? Jesus Christ. Therefore, if Jesus Christ is not God, that's blasphemy. But of course he is. They share uh, hundreds of titles, God the Father, and Jesus the Son. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. In fact, in the Old Testament, Yahweh, God the Father, is said to have the name that is above every name. And yet in Philippians, we find out, guess who has the name? Jesus has been given the name that's above all names. Fully God, fully man. Paul can't resist reminding you the blessed, the only ruler, the king of kings and lord of lords, verse 15. Look at verse 16, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see, to him be honor and might forever. It's like a doxology, a way of just springing forth with great praise for God. Let's take this verse apart. <clears throat> By the way, are you seeing who your Lord is, this Jesus I ask people sometimes, who is your Jesus? Is it the baby in the manger? Is it a humble carpenter? Well, that's part of his identity. But if, you're, if your Jesus is not the Lord of Lords, the Lord of the universe, all things were created by him and for him, and in him all things hold together, Colossians says. Pretty amazing. 
Okay, so that's the one we're praying to. That's the one we believe in. That's our Savior and Lord. So, but he's talking about God the Father here, um, who alone is immortal. Okay, what does it mean to be immortal? Biblically, it means more than just never die, because just that alone, I could say that about everybody in this room and everybody on Zoom. <coughs> Excuse me, if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are by definition immortal. <clears throat> God is immortal in a different way. <clears throat> Excuse me, in two directions. Past, he existed forever. <clears throat> I have a frog in my throat. Excuse me. Everybody's moving back in chair. <clears throat> he, <clears throat> sorry. <clears throat> sorry about that. He always existed in the past. <clears throat> he will always exist in the future. <clears throat> wow, I'm losing my voice. Um, let's see. And who lives in unapproachable <clears throat> light. That's a pretty amazing thing to say. God in the Old Testament says, no man shall see God and live. His glory <clears throat> is so amazing. He's living in, <clears throat> clothed in light, the Bible says unapproachable light. That's the reason that Jesus comes to the earth as a man so that he, we can approach him and understand him and he, us, um, in our place, he dies. So alone, immortal, uh, unimp unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see. Now you may say, now wait, Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up. Moses saw the backside sort of of the Lord Listen, God in all of his totality, no man can see him and live. Who and what he is, is it's almost like it would burn our retinas to look at him. It's like looking at the sun. You can't do it. <clears throat> and I mean S-U-N this time. The time will come, though, when we are glorified, when we go to heaven, we will see him as he is, the Bible says, and be able to have communion with him, not shy away from him and the light, but will be drawn to the light, drawn to the arms of a Savior that loves us and a God that loves us. It's a wonderful thing. No one has seen or can see. To him, God, not Diana, the goddess, not Artemis, which was the other name for Diana, not Caesar, to him be honor and might or power forever. He has the true power. Amen. So that brings us up to through verse 16. Um, we already talked about that. Yeah, Jesus Christ is the king of all kings and Lord of all lords. He will one day rule on planet earth, the second coming. So uh, yeah, we already, oh, no man shall see God and live is Exodus 33, by the way. I'm just turning the pages of my notes. Um, let's see. <clears throat> when we read that doxology about God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings, Lord of lords, the only one that's truly immortal, he can give life, by the way, and gives not only physical life to everything, as we said, but he also gives us spiritual life. He breathes into us the Holy Spirit when we became saved. With all of that, the only one who's immortal and he lives in unapproachable light, to him be honor and might forever. Amen. This, um, there's a pastor in New York City I used to follow. He's gotten some strange teachers teachings going now, so I don't follow him anymore. His name is Tim Keller. In his day, he was an amazing preacher, however. He used to say, 
the God of the universe who created everything, who gives life to everything, who spoke and the universe leapt into existence. Is that the sort of being that you ask into your life as an occasional advisor, as a bellhop that you ring the bell and go, here's what I want? Or is it somebody you fall at his feet in worship and total obedience and honor? The latter, of course. Let's keep rolling. Verse 17. So he's going to talk about rich people now. Whenever we read in the Bible about rich people, I always preface it with this. Every single one of you in this room, every single one of you on Zoom, without exception, listen, is rich by world standards. Rich. Is there anybody within the sound of my voice that is in their kitchen going, we don't have any food whatsoever. I don't even know what we're going to eat tomorrow. I doubt it, right? We're all fat and sassy. Some of us a little fatter than others. But my point is by world standards, we don't worry about that stuff in America. Uh, we have a place to live. We have our needs more than met. So with that in mind, because if I didn't say that, you would go, yeah, tell those rich people. It's all of us. We have plenty, don't we? <clears throat> Command those who are rich in this present world not to be, verse 17, arrogant or to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. So there's a contrast here, and there's the two tie together. The contrast is those that are rich, the temptation of riches is you begin to think two things. One, I am a better human being because I have more stuff, more money. I am greatly favored. That's why I have the more money. And the second lie of riches is they absolutely have bought me security. Wrong. If you can lose it, there's no peace in it. And can you lose riches? Yes, it could be stolen. The stock market could collapse. The dollar could collapse. Who knows? Gold and silver could collapse. And there's no peace in it. The proof in that is watch rich people and ask them, my dad used to always say this, how much is enough? And the answer is a little more. C.S. Lewis wrote in one of his books that the thing about rich people is it doesn't give them pleasure that they have a lot of stuff. It gives them pleasure that they, I have more stuff than that guy. It's all kind of a, a dog eat dog. You're constantly climbing that ladder. So command those who are rich, that's you, me, not to be arrogant. Don't put your hope in wealth. It'll disappoint you. The ultimate disappointment of wealth, we said about three weeks ago when this subject came up again, is that every single rich person ends up losing everything. You say, how's that? So-and-so died and he was really wealthy. He didn't take it with him, did he? Right? No hearse has a U-Haul trailer with all the guy's stuff. The people that tried to bury the rich 
with their stuff were the Egyptians, right? In the pyramids. And they would bury these kings and pharaohs with all kinds of wealth. And guess what happened? It all got stolen. Most of it. You can't take it with you. There's no security in it. Don't put your hope in wealth, which is uncertain. But now he says, here's what to put your hope in, verse 17, the second half. Put your hope in God. You know, he's the richest one. Did you know that? He owns everything. He's the king of kings, right? Put your hope in God who richly provides us with everything. Listen to this, for our enjoyment. Do you know what that verse says? That if, you're have, if you have the right attitude about the things that you have, fi financially, material things, they are there for you to enjoy them. It's not a sin to be rich any more than it's holy to be poor. But on the other hand, rich people face that constant temptation to count their money again and feel like I'm fat and sassy, right? What's Remember the parable Jesus tells about the rich man who's got so, his barns are so full. What will I do? I've got so much of everything. I know I'll tear the barn, barns down and build bigger ones. And Jesus says about that man, you fool, thou fool, King James. This very night, your soul is required of you. What will it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his soul? Remember that? So, Riches are something that God has the freedom to put into our hands or take out. We ought to have open hands, willing to give it away. One commentator wrote that if you're worried about greed being a thing in your life, start giving away your money and see how you react. If you can't sleep at night because you're so troubled, I gave that money and they might blow it and then you got a little problem. But if it gives you great pleasure to give it away, since God gave it to you, then you're doing, you have the right attitude about it. Money, love of money is a root, remember last week, of all kinds of evil. Maybe that was two weeks ago. Um, I did this Bible study from home last week. In any case, so put our hope in God. He richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment, not greeds, but needs. He provides for us. Verse 18, still talking about rich people, command them to do good, be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. Rich people have plenty. They can share, but so can we, right? We're supposed to be giving our time, talent, and treasure to our God, our, a local church, to our fellow man as they have need and what have you but we tend to be hoarders, don't we? Does anybody here only have one pair of shoes? Can I see your hands? And ladies, if you raise your hand, I know you're lying. Um, how about three? Does anybody only have three pairs of shoes? Come on. Nobody. We all have an abundance, don't we? We can afford to give. Um, that gives us the right attitude and putting our hope in God. That's an eternal hope. What God gives us, salvation, the Holy Spirit, those things we can't possibly lose. So no one can steal them from us, right? They're not going to be devalued. In fact, they'll be worth more than ever. So be a giver, he's saying. Do good with the money that you have. God rewards that sort of uh, generosity because it pictures him, doesn't he? Doesn't it? And his glory. Okay. 
<clears throat> you say, are you really going to finish this chapter? Yes, I promise. We're almost there. Um, let's see. Verse 19. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the age to come or the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. What's going on in this verse? Okay. St Jesus says, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. You say, I don't know which bank is that. By giving to others, by giving to God, you are sending it on ahead in a sense. The dollars, the goods, whatever they are, are being um, sort of translated into heavenly rewards, all for his glory, but they're still rewards. They'll lay up treasure. What way? By being generous. 19 refers back to 18. Command them to do good, be rich in good deeds, be generous, willing to share. That's the way to lay up treasure as a firm foundation. That's an old hymn, a uh, great one, for the coming age. So there's a sense in which you can send the wealth on ahead, right? By giving to other people freely for God's glory, giving to the church, laying up a treasure in heaven. And so that they may take hold of the life that is, I love this, truly life. You ever see movies or TV shows? I haven't heard it in a while, but this is a saying you'll probably remember. Where somebody is lounging by the pool at a mansion with lemonade and servants bringing them food. And he turns to his friend and he says, this is the life. Not according to that verse. When we get to heaven, we're going to go, no, this is the life, right? Because the dirty little lie is it's all going to end. Whatever pleasantries you have on this planet, if you lived in the Ukraine and had a nice mansion, it's probably a bombed out mess right now, right? You never know. You can lose it. Not heavenly riches. Laying up treasure as a firm foundation for the coming age. Take hold of the life that's truly life, that's spiritual life, that's life with God as its center, not me and my possessions. Timothy, verse 20, guard what has been entrusted to your care. Don't miss the context. It's about riches, but true riches, true life, right? Those that are extremely wealthy, if you know anybody that's crazy wealthy, and they have, you know, thousands, tens of thousands of dollars, hundreds of thousands of dollars of cash at their house, gold, silver, diamonds, Rolexes. Guess what? I'll bet you they have an alarm system. I bet you they have a safe. They guard that stuff, don't they? Doesn't mean it can't be stolen, but they do guard it. What's your point, Joe? Timothy, guard something. What's he asking him to guard? His money? No. Guard what's been entrusted to your care. He means the gospel. We have to guard it because people want to take it away. They want to remove stuff from the Bible. They want to denigrate the Bible and say, oh, you know, it's been changed over the centuries. Nothing could be further from the truth. We need to guard what's been entrusted to our care, like Timothy is commanded to do here. Turn away from, here's one of the things the false teachers was, were doing, turn away from godless chatter. 
right? All kinds of debates over word meanings we learned earlier and myths and what if, how many angels can dance on the head of a pen, you know, stupid questions. Can God make a rock so big that even he can't lift it? That's, that's meaningless chatter, isn't it? Um, turn away from godless chatter and the opposing ideas of what is falsely called, King James has science, NIV has knowledge. Falsely called knowledge. Follow the science. Listen, the science in the last 200 years has given us Darwin, right? Evolution. You say, well, that's kind of separate. And listen, that is a godless idea that was the root of, listen, communism, Marx, Lenin, Mao Zedong, Hitler. What do they have in common? Anybody know? All evolutionists. That the more superior races are the white races and the others can be exterminated because it doesn't matter. We're all evolving upward anyway. Millions and millions of people were killed. If you believe that we evolved from apes, then you'll be, if you become a leader, the type that kills off the undesirables. Guard what's been entrusted, verse 20, to your care. Turn away from that godless chatter, opposing ideas, what's falsely called knowledge. If you look at science over the centuries, uh, you'll be shocked at what used to be called knowledge. Has anybody ever heard of a practice called bloodletting? Do you know what that is? Like we got a medical professional here in his scrubs. Blood, you haven't done any bloodletting lately, have you, Russell? Bloodletting was <clears throat> a practice that somebody would come in with an ailment. My heart hurts. I, he's gone blind or deaf, or he can't walk anymore. They thought everything would be cured by draining some blood out of the person. Good one wrong, right? That was science back in the day. I could go on and on with examples of what we considered to be knowledge or science. Um, so what's, what's called falsely knowledge is the, the godly wisdom of this world, which, verse 21, some have professed, and in so doing, they've professed it, they've they bought into the knowledge of present day and in so doing have departed from the faith. They chose that over the Lord Jesus and the gospel of eternity. So he concludes with the words, grace be with you all. It's grace be with you, but the word you is you all. It is plural. Grace is unmerited, undeserved, good stuff God gives that we don't deserve, we didn't earn, and he didn't owe. He's saying that's what <clears throat> he wants to be with all of them. So 1 Timothy um, is a book of uh, Paul urging his friend, don't give up. It's timely for you and I because in our world, we are getting bombarded with all kinds of the world's philosophy that things that the Bible calls sin, the world says in commercials even now, it's not sin, it's just an alternative lifestyle. 
We have to remember and guard this gospel that we have. You can't do that if you don't know what it is. You can't do it if you don't regularly in the word, in prayer, in fellowship with other believers. There's strength in numbers. The danger to watch out for is the guy that says, just me and my Bible. I don't need any other people. Just me and God and my interpretation of the word. Iron sharpens iron, the Bible says. The reason we discuss these things is we learn from one another. We stand on the shoulders of giants who have studied this Bible over the centuries. So it's a command for us. We're not pastors, most of us, but we're commanded to guard what he's entrusted to our care. Last thing, rich. We talked about that, didn't we? About money. May I say, we talked about money in a literal sense, be willing to give some of it to those in need. But you have something else that's way more valuable than money, gold, silver, Rolexes, cars, jewelry. You have the gospel and it costs you, listen, nothing to give it away. You say, what do you mean give it away? Tell other people. The difference is this. If you have money and you say to Jesse here, I hear you're having financial problems. Let me give you a thousand dollars. Jesse will no, no doubt say, wow, thank you. Won't you? Yeah, there's proof. However, if Jesse's not a believer and I say, you know what? I want to give you the most valuable thing I have. And Jesse thinks, let's see, he's got a car. He's got a house. No, no. The most valuable thing, my relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's a Bible. I want to tell you about Jesus Christ. He may thumb his nose at you and think, no, no, I want money. I want valuable stuff. You have something that costs you nothing to give it away. But let me warn you, like Timothy, if you're like me, at times you and I wimp out, don't we? I hate to make them uncomfortable. He's my friend. And I hate to really tell him about this. Um, I told an old friend of mine, I've known him since ninth grade. We had English class together in ninth grade. And he's watched the Bible study on Zoom a few times. He's a great guy. I've known him that long. And he said, it just admitted to me that he's just completely uninterested. God, Jesus, Bible, salvation, hell, heaven. It's just, it's like a Tupperware party to him. Sorry if you sell Tupperware, I apologize. But to most of us, like, yeah, Tupperware. Yeah, okay, great. Oh, the little, little burp thing. Yeah, great. To him, it's the most uninteresting thing in the world. And I said to him, Bill, oops, I said his name. Well, anyway, I said, when he's not watching, we can talk about him. I said, when you die, Bill, and I hope it's 30 years from now, but whenever it is, this will be not the most important thing only. It'll be the only thing, period. Your work, your family, money, prestige, power, fame, good looks, muscles. It's not gonna, None of that will matter, not even this much compared to Jesus Christ. It's going to be the only thing. Okay, now that I made everyone feel guilty, let's go into second. Timothy. Um, I'm just looking at my notes to close up first Timothy. I said most of everything there. Um, he tells Timothy how to choose leaders for churches, how to treat different types of people in this, this book. Last thing first Timothy is all about is that doctrine 
matters. You say, oh, that stuff is so boring to me. Doctrine is simply what we believe and why, the scriptures to back it up. If you don't familiarize yourself with what you believe and know from the scriptures why you believe it, listen, if you don't do that, you just kind of get spoon-fed like I did years ago when I was in the Catholic church. They just spoon-fed me stuff, and I, yeah, okay, I believe it. I didn't really, we didn't own a Bible in my whole house until I was 17. My brother brought one home, textbook for college. If you just get spoon-fed and don't know why you believe it and the reasons why it's true and historic and evidential, then you are prime targets for being fooled by false doctrine. There's a church on this road that you took to get here, probably, okay, that is a new age church where they will tell you that you are gods. Hmm. Really? I kind of like that. Does that mean I don't have to take the garbage out? You're gods, and we've just forgotten that we're deity, and we're all creators, and we're all, listen, I know immediately when I hear that, the, back of, the hair on the back of my neck stands up. That's from the devil, right? That's what the devil said to Adam and Eve in Genesis 3. You'll be like God if you'll eat this fruit. Trust me. Look, it looks good. It, there's a lot of truth, so-called world truth, that sounds good, that is absolute lies from the pit of hell. That's why we know what we believe and why. Okay, now let's do the the final let's hand out the final papers and the test no i'm just kidding okay second timothy written by paul to guess who same guy about six years five years later okay here's the backstory timothy um, is still in ephesus still pastoring that difficult church but here's what's going on since then Paul was, when he wrote 1 Timothy, under house arrest, under arrest for preaching the gospel in Rome, but he was under what's called house arrest, which was really cool. He could have visitors. He could teach there little Bible studies, and he could write stuff, okay? Eventually, Paul was released and guess what he did? Went out and started planting churches again, preaching the gospel, preaching sermons, and what have you, bringing disciples. In 64 AD, the Roman Empire is in full swing, and there's a huge fire in Rome, okay, that burns blocks of buildings. And Nero who is the Caesar at the time, the most evil one of all of them, blames the Christians that they started the fire. There's no proof that they did this. They just are the scapegoat. They are the ones that get blamed for lighting the fire and burning half of Rome. As a result, great hatred results for Christians and persecution. Paul is rearrested at this time this time, no house arrest. This time, and you can go to Rome. I listened to a John MacArthur sermon where he talked about that he went there where you pay your money and go in this building, and there's a hole a little bigger than a manhole in the ground, and you can look in and see the dungeon, gross, dirty place with no windows where Paul 
was in prison. No house arrest, no cushy three meals a day. They would drop slop of food in there. Paul is awaiting execution within weeks or months. He's already had a hearing. They found him guilty. Then there is going to be a trial. And what is going to happen in very short order after he writes 2 Timothy, it's the last book of the Bible he writes, by the way, he's going to have his head chopped off. He knows it. He talks about it in several places, especially chapter four. He knows this is it for me. What does he do? He takes the pen, gets paper from somebody, drop me down a little notebook here. Um, or maybe he had a little iPad, a very small primitive, just kidding. And he writes this letter to Timothy. Timothy, he considers his protege, his son in the faith. He taught him, but his, his, Timothy's relatives had taught him. Um, so this is, uh, this is around 67, 68 AD time-wise. So Jesus dies somewhere between 30 and 32 AD. So it's been 35-ish years since Jesus died. Christianity has exploded with growth. Paul's in prison, and it sure doesn't look good. Have you ever been depressed because of your circumstances? If anybody had a reason to be depressed, it's Paul. I'm in this hole in the ground. There's no sewage down here. It's gross. It's cold. It's dark. I'm about to be killed. And Paul has bet everything on Jesus Christ, right? His whole life. He could just go to the officials in Rome and say, okay, I renounce Jesus, Caesar's Lord, let me go. He's a smart guy, probably get work in Rome, good as new, won't do it. He's bet it all on Jesus. He's all in for Jesus. So he really wants to see Timothy before he dies. He's going to say that in this book. Um, so, but he's still urging Timothy five or six years later to guess what? keep fighting. Stay there. You're there for a reason. Keep fighting for the truth. Let's take our two-minute break now and stretch our aging bodies and wake up. Don't go away. I'm going to turn my screen off. Those of you on Zoom, I'll be back in two minutes. Don't go away. There we go. Find your seats, if you will, and we'll continue. <clears throat> I don't know if that was two minutes, but it felt like an eternity to me. Just kidding. All right, we're in 2 Timothy. So turn your in your Bibles to 2 Timothy, if you will. And find your seats back there. Yeah, all right, so let's dive in. Those of you that are awake, are you still awake? Say amen. amen. Good one. Boy, people are really awake. Helps. <laughs> 2 Timothy chapter 1. Like most letters, Paul writes, in that culture, you don't say, dear Harold, and write the letter to Harold. You say who you are first, and then you say who you're writing to. So he starts <clears throat> by explaining who he is, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, in keeping with the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. That's his title for himself. 
He calls himself Paul. Remember, his name was Saul when he was a persecutor, a hater of Christians. He was actually like a bounty hunter going around finding Christians, having them arrested, having them killed, having them thrown in jail for preaching the gospel. God gets a hold of him on the road to Damascus. You remember the story? Changes his name from Saul to Paul. God changes the name of Simon to Peter, the rock. God changes the name of Abram to Abraham. Uh, in the Bible, sometimes same thing with Israel uh, from the name Jacob. So in any case, right out of the gun, he says, right out of the gate, I'm Paul. I'm an apostle. That means a sent one. That's literally what it means. In the strict sense of the word, capital A, apostle, that position has been closed. No one can be an apostle today in the same sense. Now, there is a sense, a lesser sense, that each of us are sent. We're, we, we're believers, and we're supposed to go share the gospel with your family, your friends, your neighbors, the people you work with, the people you go to school with, whatever it may be, your clients, if you have a business. But in the capital A sense of an apostle, the rule was you had to have seen the risen Christ, okay? So you're talking the 11 apostles, not Judas, remember? They added Matthias 12. Paul was the 13th, you might say, okay? There are a few others that are called apostles in that sense in the book of Acts, but this is not a job that's available today. You can't run for apostle, and I wouldn't want to, right? But he is literally an apostle. He saw the risen Christ. He's an apostle of Christ Jesus. Those titles, you can reverse them, Jesus Christ. It makes no difference in the meaning. The word Christ means Messiah or Christos in Greek, and the word Jesus is the name of the man. He is the anointed one, the promised one, the Christ Jesus. And how are you an apostle, Paul? By the will of God. Paul didn't run for the office. Paul didn't want the office. The last thing he wanted, he hated Christians, but God said, that guy, I want that guy. And of course, God's will is done by the will of God. In keeping with the promise, this is beautiful, the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. Listen, there's no other promise of life on planet earth. No medicine, no vitamins, no new treatments that they have will give you the promise of this kind of spiritual, eternal life. This is it. The promise of life, singular. Many people that are critics of Christianity say, you know, the problem with Christianity is you people are so narrow. Yours is the only way. We believe that there are many paths to God, many ways to get there. God understands. And so he's created Hinduism for that part of the world and Buddhism for that part of the world and Islam for that part of the world and the new age movement for the hippies and the people with Birkenstocks. And the point is truth as a thing. Have you ever noticed how narrow truth is? Two plus three is five. I don't care if for you it's 11 and for him it's 29. Those are great answers and they're wrong. There's one right answer and a billion wrong answers to two plus three. It's not open to opinion. Where are you right now? You have GPS on your phone. They know exactly where you are, by the way. I can tell you a million places you're not. You're not in China, Australia, New Zealand, 
right? You're not in Massachusetts. You are, well, maybe somebody on Zoom is, but anyway, right where you are, that's the one right answer. Jesus Christ says he's the way, the truth, and the life. And then he has the audacity to say, no man comes to God except through me. Peter says the same thing in the book of Acts. There's no other name given among men whereby we must be saved. The one way, go back to verse one of chapter one of second Timothy, the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. What I love about that is Jesus is God. Therefore, you know from the Old Testament, God cannot lie. He can't in, against his nature. So if when he promises something, it's as sure as anything can ever be. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, in keeping with the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. To, this is how you write letters. You say who you are, then you say who you're writing to. Timothy, my dear son, not biologically, his son in the faith. That's what he calls him. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the greeting. In every letter except these letters to Timothy, he says, grace and peace. Those are the two greetings of that time. Grace is charis, from which we get the word charisma, means gift, basically. Grace, and then peace is, from his Jewish roots, it's the word shalom, which means peace. Peace is the absence of war, and we were at war with God, so it can mean that. It can also mean peace, that inner tranquility that you have from knowing that you know God personally and that the relationship is secure because of Jesus Christ. So grace, good things that we don't deserve, and peace. That's the normal greeting. Only in the, one, the letters he writes about pastors does he include the word mercy. Why? One commentator wrote, pastors must need more mercy than most people. Okay, isn't mercy the same thing as grace? No, they're close cousins. Grace is good things that are given that you don't deserve and can't earn, and that weren't owed. Mercy is bad things that you do deserve, punishment that God withholds in his love for you. That's the difference. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Kyrios. The word in Greek is the same word used for God the Father in the Old Testament. What's your point, Joe? Again, if Jesus Christ is not God, then this is a blasphemous sentence to put right next to God the Father, the name of a guy, Jesus Christ, and call him our Lord. But Jesus Christ is God in human flesh. So it's not blasphemy. It's a beautiful two out of three for the Trinity, isn't it? Christ Jesus and God the Father. We saw it at the end of First Timothy as well. So <clears throat> that's who he's writing to. Christ Jesus is our Lord. One quick thing about that. If you've never been in this Bible study before, right now you're thinking, boy, one word at a time. No wonder it takes forever. Amen. Um, it's the teacher's fault. I get that. Listen, the word Lord. Some people come to Jesus for salvation. Nothing wrong with that. It's biblical. What does that make him? Your 
savior, the one who saves you, right? That's right. But if Jesus is not also your Lord, then you got a problem biblically. What's a Lord? Lord means boss. It means master. It means when he says A, that's what I want you to do. And you think, but I would rather do B, you do A every time. He's your Lord. He calls the shots. He's literally God in a man's body. Okay, verse three. I thank God whom I serve as my ancestors did with a clear conscience as night and day, I constantly remember you in my prayers. Paul is near the end of his life. This is the most personal letter Paul writes. There's 22 personal names in this letter. This is his swan song, if you will. It's the final letter he knows it is. So as he's reflecting on his life, he's going to talk about the future. But right now, he's thinking back in time even to before he was born, to the saints of old, the Jewish men and women who were believers in centuries past, the ones that faithfully served God. He says, I'm serving God just as my ancestors did down the line, right? People have lived and died serving God. You will meet them in heaven. That blows my mind that you're going to meet Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Adam, Eve, all of them, aren't you? King David, the Virgin Mary, Peter. I got some words for Adam and Eve, don't you? They messed everything up. But every time you and I sin, we ratify their decision, right? To go our own way. Fleetwood Mac song. Okay. I thank God whom I serve as my ancestors did with a clear conscience. Now that does not mean he's saying I never sin. A clear conscience is not saying you never sin. A clear conscience is a conscience that knows what God's will is. And every sin, yes, there's sin, is dealt with. Two ways. Number one, I just sinned a half an hour ago. I've immediately bowed my head and said, God, I'm so sorry I said that. That was hurtful. Please, I turn from that. Forgive me for that sin. They're dealt with immediately. Don't put it off. Second thing is they're dealt with and they're erased because Jesus Christ paid on the cross for that particular one half an hour ago, sin and every other one you'll ever commit. But we acknowledge them. All the sins are dealt with. That's how you keep short accounts with God and have a clear conscience. So he's, I think, thanks God that he serves with a clear conscience as Night and day, I constantly remember you in my prayers. Do you think that's hyperbole? I don't think so. I don't think it's exaggeration. I think he prays for Timothy night and day, all day long. By the way, Paul can't preach now. He's in a dungeon awaiting execution. You know what he can do? Pray. Got tons of time on my hand. I'm going to use it. I'm going to pray. I always mention when we talk about prayer that the elements of prayer are the wrong way to spell, um, I'm sorry, the right way to spell Acts, A-C-T-S, like the book Acts, the book of Acts. Those four letters are an acronym for what your prayers and mine ought to contain. A is for adoration, meaning part of your prayer should just be praise and adoration and worship of God right? The Lord's prayer starts that way. 
right? Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. That's adoration. You don't rush into God's presence and go, gimme, 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 here's what I want. And I'll give you till Thursday at two and please hurry it up. And can I get the one with fries and the large Coke? We rush into God's presence. That's the wrong thing to do. All prayer should begin with A, adoration. C, confession. Some part of our prayer is, we talked about it a second ago, short accounts with God. I know that I have not been reading the word like I should, Lord. I've been ignoring you. I'm so sorry. I've done this. I've done that. I've had impure thoughts, whatever it may be greedy attitude and angry attitude. I haven't forgiven him for what he did to me. Adoration, A, C, confession, T, thanksgiving. He just said it, didn't he? I thank God whom I serve as my ancestors did with a clear conscience. There's confession. As night and day, I constantly remember you in my prayers. He's thanking God, thanksgiving. No sin is worse when dealing with God than forgetting to thank him for the 8 billion things he has done and is to you, right? Every time Jesus eats in the New Testament, he thanks God before he eats. Shouldn't you and me? Yes, even at a restaurant. Yes, even with unbelievers. I thank God. I constantly remember you in my prayers. Back to the acronym A, adoration, C, confession, T, thanksgiving, S, supplication. That's just asking God to do things. That's a simple way to put it. It's just the general word for prayer. What does that mean? Please heal Doreen. She's been sick. You heard me pray for all those things. I pray for our nation. I pray for revival. I pray for health for myself. I pray for other people, my family, your friends whatever it may be. Sometimes it's praying for direction. What do you want me to do, God? Please, I'm thinking of doing this. Would you please close the doors and slam them shut if you don't want me to do that? And please open them wide if you want me to do whatever. Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. That'll be on the test. You better write it down. Just kidding. There's no test. Verse four, recalling your tears, Timothy. I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. Elsewhere, he mentions this, that Timothy cried like a baby, a grown man, when he, Paul said goodbye to him and had to leave Ephesus and left Timothy there to be the pastor of this wayward church. Timothy hated to see Paul go. He loved Paul like a father, and he, indeed he was a father in the faith. Recalling your tears, I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. Doesn't mean he's not filled with joy now, but it would give him such great joy to see Timothy one more time. So the obvious question is, so did Tim make it out there before Paul got his head chopped off? And the answer is, we don't know. No record of it. He might not have been able to leave Ephesus in time. Paul may have died without seeing his buddy Timothy. I can guarantee you though, they're together now hanging out. They've been catching up for a couple thousand years, right? What a nice thing. But he does long to see him um, and that it will fill him with joy. Verse five, I'm reminded of your sincere faith. The word has the idea of being unhypocritical, not fake. Do you know that some people fake it? in Christianity. They just play Christianity and they learn all the words. God bless you. Amen. Praise God. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I'll pray for you. Well, you know, we're really hurting and we could use some food. 
I'll pray for you. I got a fridge and a freezer in the garage. I'll pray for you. Anyway, don't get me started. I'm reminded of your sincere faith. You know, you can fool me and I can fool you. Nobody can fool God. He sees right through us. So we might as well have that sincere faith. Amen. I'm reminded of your sincere faith, verse 5, which first lived in your grandmother, Lois, and in your mother, Eunice, and I'm persuaded now lives in you also. Timothy, has, we learn elsewhere, his father was Greek, but his mother and his grandmother were Jewish, and so they raised him in the Old Testament. Someday there's going to be a Messiah, Timothy, and this and that, and now there's been the Lord Jesus that has come. They, they really gave him a godly foundation. If you remember nothing else, I say tonight, remember this. You can be Lois and Eunice to somebody. Your grandchildren, your children, your sister, your spouse, your friend, your, you fill in the blank, but be mentoring somebody, teaching them, witnessing to them. There is no guarantee that everybody you do that with will be fruitful ground and will believe and grow. Some of them will thumb their nose at you and never talk to you again. But this is an awesome thing that Lois did. Of course, Lois, you remember from the Superman show? Anyway, um, and his, Lois was his grandmother and his mother, Eunice. They had that sincere faith and they passed it on. How many know that sincere faith is, in a good way, contagious? Right? You don't sneeze on somebody and get saved, but you're around godly people. Boy, it's contagious. It's attractive sincere faith. No phony baloney stuff. No, I'm in it for the money, this ministry thing. Give, we know where you live. You know, those guys on TV, not that. Sincere faith. That faith now lives in you also, he's reminding in verse five. Look at verse six. For this reason, I remind you, this sounds a lot like first Timothy, to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. So he's comparing in a metaphor, the gift that he's been given. Okay. We're going to talk about what that is, that it sounds kind of like if you have a fire in the fireplace or make a bonfire outside and you leave it alone for a while, what you see is the second law of thermodynamics in science, which is everything runs downhill. Eventually, that fire, it's maybe a roaring fire, but come back in an hour, it'll be smaller, come back in four hours. If you haven't added fuel to it or stoked or fanned the flames, what's the status of the fire? It's going out. He's kind of hinting that, Timothy, your fire, your zeal for the gospel and for ministry it's going out. Fan the flames. So we have to ask ourselves, how do you do that? You really have to get a fan and, you know, put air on it? No. And what is the uh, gift of God that he's supposed to fan? Is it, I don't think the gift of God can be his salvation. I don't think that's it. Because that's not something I can fan and make happen. God so saves us, right? And I'm one of those people that believes God saves us eternally. 
Once you're saved, if you're truly saved, you cannot lose your salvation. You can slip and fall. He'll pick you up. Noah could slip um, on the ark and fall down. He could not fall overboard. There was no balconies, right? There was one door and God's the one that locked the door. You can slip. God will pick you up. You're not going to lose your salvation if you're truly saved. So I don't think it's his salvation that he's supposed to fan. I think it's his gift. What's Timothy's gift? He has a gift for teaching God's word and preaching it. He's the head of a church. But with all the persecution and all the embarrassment of, hey, isn't your mentor guy, Paul, the guy in the hole in Rome now? In prison? Yeah. And isn't it a, almost a crime to be a Christian in Rome? Yeah. It's almost a little embarrassing to be a Christian. At this time in the late 60s, first century, Christians were sort of starting to back away and shut up due to peer pressure. Fan the flame. What does that mean? He's got to rekindle add more fuel, if you will, to the, remember our analogy about the fire that's going out? You can stoke it and you can put wind on it, but you got to add fuel. Okay, what's that? Listen, God does not use us like robots where he just makes us do everything. He requires our participation, our cooperation, our obedience, our act of a will to number one, pray. Number two, stay in his word regularly. Number three, regain that excitement for who and what the gospel is all about, which is Jesus Christ. Timothy is in danger of wimping out, just like he was four or five years ago, maybe more so. He's telling him, fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you, present tense, still there, from the, through the laying on of my hands. Now, when Timothy was ordained to be a pastor, Paul was there along with others. They prayed over him. They laid hands on him. The laying on of the hands did not dis, uh, give the gift because First uh, Corinthians 12 says, it's either 12 or 14, says that the Holy Spirit's the one that gives the gifts. We don't choose, I'm going to give you the gift of ABC. Anybody that says that is lying to you. They don't have gifts to be giving out. If they are, they're gifts you would wrap up in a box, not spiritual gifts. Holy Spirit gives those. But the laying on of the hands was the ordination, the sort of the visual um, for Timothy. He's saying you still have the gift, fan the flame. Get back into the word. Get back into preaching. Um, find that excitement again. So... Timothy is in need of great encouragement again, and Paul is frustrated. That's why he wants to see him, because Paul knows he's got very, very few days left. We don't know how many, but he dies after he writes this book um, to some extent. Remember that you're a preacher. You're a defender of the truth. Fire is a good metaphor, isn't it? You ever been in a totally dark place and somebody lights a fire and it's just so comforting, not only because it's warm physically, but it provides light. He's saying you're supposed to be the light in that area and the light's going out, Tim. Fan that flame. <clears throat> Get it going again. Um, yeah, we already talked about that. Fires have to be frequently stirred up. 
I left my house. It was so cold today here. Wasn't it cold today? Way colder than and it's going to be like 89, like by the weekend. Anyway, those of you that are elsewhere going, we don't care. I know. Um, but I left my house with a fire going and firewood there because you got to keep putting wood in or it's going to go out. Right. Keep fanning that flame. Okay. Um, just reading my notes here. Yep. Verse seven for the spirit of God. I'm sorry for the spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. Who has new American standard or King James here? Anybody? Will you read, which one do you have? Will you read King James nice and loud, Kathy? God has not given us a spirit of fear. I like that translation way better. Um, but, uh, but of power and of love and of a sound mind, right? Beautiful. He's saying the spirit God gave us. Stop right there. What's he talking about? Talking about the Holy Spirit. Well, who has the Holy Spirit? According to Romans, every single Christian that is truly saved automatically the Holy Spirit of God, third person of the Trinity, comes to live inside of you permanently. He unpacks and settles down. Doesn't move out when you sin. You can grieve him when you sin, right? We're also told in some of the epistles Paul wrote not to, listen, quench the Spirit, right? That's almost like when you sin, you're throwing water on that flame, or when you doubt, or when you get lazy, or whatever the case may be. But that verse is saying <clears throat> the spirit that God gave us, it's not a spirit of number one, fear. Who gave you the spirit? God gave you the Holy Spirit. Okay, that's the first thing. Second thing, but what about when I'm afraid? Because everybody is one to one degree or another, right? At certain times. That this verse is saying that that fear, although real, is not from God. No way. God doesn't give us a spirit of fear. Okay. So that's the world, the flesh, the devil, our own sin, circumstances coming in and making us afraid because we're forgetting who lives inside of us. The spirit of God, the spirit God gave us, uh, not as make us timid, not a spirit of fear, but of What's the next word, Kathy, there? Not, a, but of, sorry? But of power and of love and of a sound mind. So instead of fear, the spirit that lives inside of us is a spirit of power. Okay. <clears throat> you say, how much power? Are we talking 110 volts, like a normal 220? Is it really? Listen, the power depends where you plug right? Um, if you've got an electric stove or dryer, that's 220. Don't stick a, flat, uh, a little um, bobby pin in there because you'll go flying if you, if you live through it. That's a lot of power. We're talking God's power here. An unlimited, unbelievable power, the power of God, right? Amen. We have a song we're going to do Sunday, Jeff and I, and a couple of the people called The Power of God. So 
we have that power. You say, but then why don't I feel that? Why don't I, why aren't I living that? I live in fear a lot. Listen, it's all what you're paying attention to that you think it's all up to you to solve all your problems and you're forgetting that there's power there. The same power is in each single believer and married believer, each person here, including me. The difference in people's lives though is some people are submitting to that power and some are resisting that power. Some people are doubtful. They are too distracted by their circumstances to ever spend the time in prayer and in the, in the scriptures to actually believe the power that's there. It's absolutely untapped in a lot of believers. I believe when we get to heaven, one of the surprising things is going to be, we will realize that we had unlimited power that went unused because we didn't pray and we didn't step out in faith and believe God. Okay, so power. And the next phrase, Kathy, in, in King James is, hold on, let me find the verse again. Um, power, love is the next one, isn't it? Okay. Now you may say, okay, no fear. I like that. Power. I like that. Love. Oh, may I say that might be the most powerful thing that's there, right? That love is multidimensional. It is, first of all, God's love that he has showered down onto you. Completely undeserved. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So that's, first of all, God's love that he's given us. I don't think we can comprehend how powerful that is and how, how deep and wide it is, right? He loves you. You say, yeah, but I know me and I'm not that lovable. And God says, I know how unlovable you are, Joe. I love you anyway. That's pretty amazing. That sort of love, when you realize what it is and that you've gotten it and it's not deserved, will enable you, listen, to take that same love and do two things with it. Number one, to love God back, but also to shine it out horizontally toward people that aren't that lovable, right? To love others even though they don't deserve it because I didn't deserve it and God loved me, I'm going to shine that same love outward. Okay, the next phrase in that verse is not fear, power, God's power, God's love. You know, the book of Romans says that the love of God has been shed abroad in our hearts. Do you know what that means? You can't say, I just don't like him. I don't have enough love in me. No, the love of God's been shed abroad. Just like the power, it may never get used but to the extent you step out in love and love that person, uh, then you'll see it. Um, I got COVID a week ago Saturday, scheduled to preach the sermon here the next day. Not only did I never preach it, had notes, had PowerPoint, it was going to be great. Yeah, right. <laughs> but I, I probably will never get to preach it because we've gone on in the little list of who preaches when and the next scripture and all that, which is totally fine. My point is, there was a big, long section in that sermon about love. <clears throat> and that and if you've been in this Bible study for a while, you've heard me say this before. Love is not an emotion. It's not something you feel. And the reason I know that is because we're commanded to love God, commanded, 
and you can't command emotions. We're commanded to love our brethren, our brothers and sisters, our fellow humans. We're even commanded, are you ready for this, to love our enemies. Are you kidding? So it can't be a feeling. I will never have that feeling to love my enemies. Okay, so if it's not an emotion, and I'll prove to you it's not an emotion, everyone here on the count of three, be sad. Ready? One, two, three. Did it work? Some of you are smiling. You're not doing a very good job. Of course it didn't work. I can't make you sad just by telling you to be sad. You can fake it. Everybody be happy. One, two, three. You're either happy or you're not. Emotions can't be commanded. Okay, so what's love then, Mr. Smarty Pants? If it's not an emotion, it's a verb. It's just something you do. It's, but I don't feel it for him. I don't really like her. Love him anyway. Just do good things to them. When you do, the weird thing is, God will give you more love to give, and the feelings often follow. Don't wait for the feelings. When I feel it, then I'll do something nice. Just do it anyway, because God didn't wait till you were lovable, or I was. Okay, there's my sermon now. Let's take the collection and go home. No, I'm just kidding. Um, not fear, power, love, and what's the last phrase, Kathy, in that verse, verse 7? Okay, see, NIV has self-discipline, which is, to me, sound mind. Boy, we all need that. Do you ever feel like, I don't have that sound of a mind lately. I'm just all over the map. A sound mind, a solid mind that is disciplined, that's partly true, but is rooted in your values being godly. This, this is what matters. Your relationship with God and your obedience to him, your love of others and giving the gospel out and what have you, not money, not fame, not power, not drugs, not alcohol, not muscles or anything else people spend their whole lives trying to get. And it means nothing. And we're out of time. And so Joe better shut up and pray. Let's pray. We'll continue Second Timothy next week, God willing, and the creek don't rise. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for these amazing, both these books to Timothy. I feel like I'm Timothy getting the message, God. I pray that each one here would remember that we're called to fight the good fight until the end, whether it's the end of our lives or until your son returns. And I pray he returns soon, the sooner the better. But in the meantime, may we be living lives that are pure in conduct, in thought, word, the world is watching us, God, make us, excuse me, make us better examples. And then the whole money thing kind of pinched us tonight. We all can be doing more to help others, to help churches, help us to hold with an open hand everything you've given us so we can use it for your glory. Help us to live with the eternal perspective and to treasure and guard the gospel and the gifts that we've been given, God. Help us to uh, remember that our fear is a lack of faith and perfect love casts out fear. Help us to trust you that that power, that sound mind, and that love have all been given to us. Help us to step out in faith and use them and live it for our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray, and we pray all these things in his name. Amen.
Thank you for being here. Those of you that are here, make sure you say hello to someone you don't know. They're waiting to see if you'll introduce yourselves. Those of you on Zoom, thanks for being here. God bless. See you next Tuesday.